You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of Surely You Must Be Joking, Dr. Fleming. I'm Stephen Heiner, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Stephen. We've talked more than once about the attack on on Southern symbols, but we see now that even monuments to Catholic missionaries are being defaced uh, at my alma mater, St. Louis University. They removed Father DeSmet uh, from the campus and put him in a museum because obviously that was offensive to anyone who was uh, against the removal of darkness from the Native Americans uh, and bringing them to Christianity. What What is the proper response to actions like this? Well, uh, you, I have, I do have some hothead friends who think there should be uh, should be violent counter protests, or we should call for uh, tearing down monuments to Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King, and uh, so all of these things are, uh, you know, of course, are <coughs> possible if people want to throw uh, caution and uh, and ethics to the winds. What what is the by the way what is the is there any specific allegation against Father Desmet or just the fact that he wanted to Christianize the Indians? That that in itself is such a large crime. You have to realize that. Yeah, I mean, what about Father Huda uh, Parasierra in in California, whose statue has been uh, defaced? I understand. Did he? I mean, so far as I could tell, he was a charitable and kind person who. Of, you know, of, objected to human sacrifice and other quaint uh, <clears throat> Native American customs. But uh, did he do anything bad? Did he enslave them? Or you can you they they can make up whatever they'd like. Yeah. It has to fit their narrative, Doctor Fleming. The same <laughs> thing uh, with the. I think there's an ongoing now, maybe perhaps more shrill discussion about. Uh, the statue of Columbus right next to Central Park in Columbus Circle. Yes. I think that's also under question as well. I heard a, uh, I once heard a very witty talk by a uh, black woman in South Carolina, and she and uh, she said, well, I don't think we should be content with removing statues to Columbus or much less to Confederate generals. We have to go much farther. Uh, Leesburg, Virginia must change its name, for example. But also, uh, what about Columbus, Georgia? What about Columbus, Ohio? What about, in fact, can't the United Nations pressure the country of Colombia to change its name? <laughs> and uh, she did the whole thing tongue-in-cheek as if she were uh, completely, uh, completely uh, committed to this position, but then, of course, was laughing, uh, couldn't help herself. Yeah, I mean, the, the, these things are a reductio ad absurdum. My view is, of course, uh, th- throughout, throughout my adult life, and when, when people have said, well, we must adopt the strategies of our enemies. If they stab you in the back, we must stab them in the back. If, if they assault our women, we must assault their women. And uh, I have a simple uh, response, which is we, we must not adopt the weapons or techniques of our enemies. You know, on the, uh, during the war between the states in uh, a neighboring state to where you grew up, that is in, in uh, Missouri, but I, I, actually it was the raid on Lawrence, Kansas, the, the, uh, the Missourians, uh, the Quantrill's men, led by Bloody Bill Anderson, there are, uh, many of the women in there in their, uh, that were related to them were in a building in, I believe, St. Louis, an unsafe building, it collapsed, some were injured, some were killed. And Bill Anderson was unhinged by this. I think it killed his sister, among others. And he said, you have chosen to make war on women, expect no less from us. But in the, in the raid on Lawrence, Kansas, they, he instructed his men to kill any man old enough to shoot a gun. For practical purposes, this is reviewed as roughly 14. But they didn't touch the hair on a woman's head. So even bloody Bill Anderson, who certainly deserved the sobriquet, bloody, uh, he, he refused. Charles Peggy, uh, a beloved Catholic poet in France, on the eve of World War I, uh, declared in an editorial, he said, well, we have done this, we, we, we enlisted soldiers, we're preparing, what else must we do for, to resist the German attack? And his answer was nothing. 
If France does a German-style, a Prussian-style mobilization, France will no longer be France. She will be giving to the Germans, in other words, the, the, what, 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 they're, what they really want, which is to Germanize the whole world. Um, my response to all of this is that the one proper response, the one legitimate response to moral evil uh, across the board, and this includes uh, the evil of uh, women being encouraged to murder their unborn children, that this kind of, the, the best response is to drop out of inst any institutions or associations that promote or even condone evil. Uh, including uh, the cultural genocide form of evil that we're talking about in the attack on Christian and Southern and, and eventually all all historic monuments. Well, you know, I I'm I try to be as secesh as you are, Doctor Fleming, but this would this would mean no movies, television, news. Uh, there would be a sort of secession from the world, and surely, Doctor Fleming, that's not what you're advocating, is it? Well, not exactly, but in one sense, yes. I'm certainly not advocating the establishment of a Qumran-style community, uh, or uh, there are some uh, traditional Christian groups that think they can move in, into the wilderness and pretend to be the Amish. No. But uh, let's, let's, let's think about uh, what's going on. When, when, for example, you have to rename Calhoun Hall at Yale, or mon mon Southern monuments, Christian monuments, anyone who ever owned a slave uh, uh, cannot, uh, his name cannot be uh, lent to a city. These are all monuments to what I like to think of as the pre-postmodern civilization, uh, because we're anything that anything that happened roughly before 1960. I remember Bill Clinton was asked who were his favorite presidents, and he started to name Franklin Roosevelt and Jack Kennedy. And he said, no, I mean in the 19th century. And he said, in my view, America didn't exist until, uh, until the liberation of Negroes, women, and children. So, you know, in other words, the, the world gets reinvented uh, once a decade. So any, in other words, any, uh, any past representation of a culture, any allusion to people who might have held different views from us has to be eliminated. I saw on the, I was, uh, I was reading a review of some uh, early 20th century detective novel on, on Amazon, and a person wrote a reasonably intelligent review, but then he said, um, the racial stereotyping and ethnic stereotyping is really abominable and you have to watch out for it. So I just said, why? I forget who it was. It was an English writer from about 1920. I said, how is this writer any different from anybody else who wrote then or for in the previous several thousand years? Is it really, this is the only way we're permitted to read a book is with our, with our thumb in the wind and our, our ear to the ground, hoping to find traces of sexism or genderism or racism or bigotry. Now, this whole attitude this whole attitude, of course, smacks of what the Taliban did in destroying uh, Buddhist sculptures, what ISIS has, was doing in Palmyra and, uh, and all over, any territory that ISIS takes, or and, and frankly, any uh, militant Islamic group. And it's, of course, what they did during the French Revolution, destroying, for example, the tombs of the Merovingian kings. We are not, that is, we as uh, Christians, as representatives of an older civilization, we haven't drawn any line in the sand against these people. They are drawing the line in the sand in saying that everything we love or believe in, every, every, every person we might revere, is an enemy of the human race. We're not human. So we're, these are, they're, they're putting themselves in the position of pagan officials in the Roman Empire, although I, I think some of them Martyr stories are a bit uh, <coughs> fictional and over the top, but nonetheless, there were such people who told Christians they had to repudiate Christ and worship Caesar. Well, that's the choice we are being given, and if we say no, no, we, we refuse to, to side with them, then these people uh, becoming our, they become our enemy. I mean, they, 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 they make themselves our enemy. They, it's the logic of uh, what I wrote about this uh, years ago in the Washington Post. It's the logic of cultural genocide. 
That is, cultural genocide being defined uh, by some quasi-official UN documents as the attempt to wipe out the identity and historical memory of a, of a people. Uh, that's, the, that's what they're doing with all this name-changing and monument defacing. They're basically saying that we're outcasts. We're Gentiles in Israel. We're Jews in the Third Reich. And shouldn't we, as outcasts, as outlaws, as despised, reject all the values and culture of those who would torment us? You know, it's interesting, Dr. Fleming, whenever I'm in the South and I see something like Lee Park or, you know, General, General Jackson Avenue or something like Stone Mountain, I feel so comforted because uh, those things still exist and people can deny all they want, but they, they, they would give you, I even remember, uh, it might have been in Raleigh, Raleigh-Durham, but there is a Confederate, uh, at a major intersection, there's a statue of a Confederate soldier and it, and it says for hearth and home underneath the statue. Yeah. That's all it says. And just, you know, there's a heartening to having that be part of your commute on a daily basis. And I think people, there's a tiny victory there. And removing that victory and, and being taught that your ancestors are despicable scum, when you take away someone's history and you take away their heritage, uh, practically speaking, so even if we buy all the arguments of the social justice warriors, you're priming people for violence or some kind of rebellion when you tell them that they're scum, they will live up to your expectations. Yeah, you're, you are uh, right in so many ways. And when, you, you, when people don't have history and tradition, what they're left with is ideology. And most ethnic and racial ideologies are ideologies not based on celebration of my people, but a hatred of your people. And this is, of course, what, uh, what white Europeans are accused of in coming to the New World. That is, we wiped out a, a, a civilization. And let's suppose that that's all true. Let's suppose that... Um, I was reading uh, Montaigne the other day, who in, in his, uh, one of his uh, article, one of his essays, I think it's, it's on coaching, on riding, riding in carriages, and he says uh, that the civilization of South America was higher than anything experienced in Europe. Their only problem was they hadn't, dis they hadn't developed a technology of war, and they were duped by the wily Europeans. Let's suppose that the, that the lying, duplicitous Montaigne for a change was telling the truth about something, although he never told the truth. But, all right, that was 500 years ago. There is no more Indian culture to defend. So what, we're, what they are saying is that it's now time to turn about its fair play and renegade Europeans should now destroy all the evidence of the culture that actually they're, that, 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 that they're revolting against, but that they should do every wicked thing which they're attributing to the uh, colonists uh, into the New World. And of course, it's not true. I mean, uh, one may have reservations about colonization and reservations about some of the actions taken, but once people were here, the, uh, the, the natives were not exactly a sweet, innocent, lovable people. They practiced uh, systematic uh, cannibalism and human sacrifice, and uh, they inflicted their cultural values on the newcomers. So it, it was certainly, it ended up being a war to the knife. Whether it had to be as brutal as it was, I don't know. But but cert but the accusations against Columbus and Cortez and every American frontiersman, uh, e the things that they are alleged to have done is precisely what the modern multiculturalist wants to do. He wants to destroy an entire civilization, an entire nation. So I, I had alluded to earlier what what you're suggesting, Dr. Fleming. This this you might call it semi-secession, how would this work exactly? Yeah. Well, let's take, a, maybe take the, uh, the simplest case, uh, but let's, let's push it to the extreme. Let's suppose that we agree, that we, we, we picked a year that uh, after which things were so wicked 
in uh, in uh, Western pop culture that uh, that we might that we can we can just simply withdraw from it. And t- let, let's suppose the year is 1970 or 1965. Let, let's suppose, or or we could just say anything, uh, anything even in the past 20 from 20 years ago, anything from the new millennium. It doesn't matter. Suppose we couldn't watch TV. Suppose we couldn't. We could only watch old movies. Suppose we couldn't listen to any music on the radio except music that was recorded before uh, the specific date. So what do we lose by this? And actually, uh, let me be a little more specific because I, this is the way I already live. Uh, I only watch new movies or listen to recent uh, popular music when I'm looking something up, when I want to understand something going on, bizarre in the world. But what would you lose? You're a, you're a young man, Stephen. You're, even though you are very detached, from a contemporary culture, you, you, you can't entirely escape. I mean, you do have Apple products that, that fill your life with richness and beauty. <laughs> <laughs> what, would, what would you, what, would, what do you think, for example, uh, uh, you, you, you couldn't see any, the, the ninth remake of Ocean's Eleven with George Clooney and his pals? What would this, uh, or, uh, or a Vin Diesel movie, perhaps? There's a series of movies where he, he, he I forget what the character is. I, I once saw one on a plane. He, he, there's science fiction movies. He goes it's, called, it's called The Chronicles of Riddick. Exactly. See, you know the titles. I bet you've seen the movies. <laughs> I, I hate to admit it, <laughs> but I, I have. Um, <laughs> but, but to your point, on Rem, I, I don't think I'd lose a whole lot. I, I consistently believe, I, I, I feel very frustrated that there's a a new Blade Runner movie coming out with the cooperation of both Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford, so it's frustrating. I feel you have to leave well enough alone. But uh, Yeah, but it won't me, have, I, I guarantee you this, it won't have the cooperation of Philip K. Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, no. Uh, but it, it, I wouldn't lose a whole lot. I, I continue to, to make the case to, to friends and, and family, anyone who will hear that, if you can detach from news, and it, with the exception what the Fleming Foundation chooses to bring to you, uh, your life will be better. If you're not involved in this news churn, uh, and if you're not involved in all of these, the, the, the modern entertainments, the music, the, the literature, the, the arts that are available to us from before this time period, before we completely lost our minds, uh, are superior and will improve your life. And I think from a Christian perspective, at the particular judgment, I'll have to answer for what I know. Yes, for and every share think, song you played on the radio. Yes, uh, uh, yes if, if, I, if only I could turn back time and make sure that I didn't listen to those songs, Dr. Fleming. But, they but run alas, through I, your mind. I'm By stuck. the way, they do. You know, unfortunately, when, uh, it went, when I was growing up, when I was in my teens and early 20s, everybody played the radio the whole bloody day. So, I mean, you, you get out, you're studying, you're having breakfast, you, the top 40 radio is, is playing. And unfortunately, as a result, there is hardly a, uh, from 1958 to, uh, to 1972, there is hardly a top 40 song I can't quote virtually verbatim. And uh, think not only of the the amount of uh, neurological space being wasted, but, you know, I can't, I'll hear a little, I have this horrible uh, affliction. I'll hear a tune in Bach or Mozart, and it's not just the obvious things like uh, the Lover's Symphony by the Toys, you know, da-da-da-da-da, but it's it's subtle things that nobody, nobody, that are accidental, but they trigger your, 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 your memory is so inextricably linked, all of these different things. So I, I feel my, my imagination has been poisoned. It has, yes. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> back, back, back to your point, you're asking me what, you know, what I would lose. I would say I don't think much. So what would be the effective first steps? Are, are you saying maybe try one particular thing, be it the news or films? Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, starting with the news is a good thing. One of the first things I wrote for this foundation's website was a, I wrote the, the, mocking the whole idea of news. Nothing, there's nothing new under the sun, uh, Seth the preacher. You know, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So I, the idea that some, you know, if you... When there's a hurricane, all you can read about 
is the hurricane. Now, uh, uh, there's a point to this. You turn on uh, CNN or Fox or you, you turn on the radio news or, the comp- or you see a computer and you see a windblown reporter standing in Florida or in Houston and there's rubble and things blowing down the street. And yes, it's blowing up quite a Well, this goes on day after day after day. On the, or on the Drudge Report, or any, new, any news report. Well, what does this mean? It means that there's nothing that's ever going on in the, in the news that's of any significance that can't be pushed aside by a totally meaningless hurricane that is, un, unless you happen to be in the path, or you know people who are in the path, it is of no relevance to you, and the attempt to make it relevant to you is morally degrading to you because you're developing maudlin sympathy for people you've never met and will never meet and know nothing about. So, stopping, so there, there is no news, there's, as I like to say, there's only olds, there's no news. And there was a town, you know, a, a, a town, Thuri in southern Italy, founded, uh, uh, founded by a number of different Greek city-states. They passed a law, I think Plutarch tells us this, they passed a law fining anybody who went down to the harbor to greet a new coming ship and saying, hey man, what's new? I, I, I know you're not a huge fan of Thoreau, uh, Dr. Fleming, but you're, <laughs> what you just said has inspired me to, to go back to a part I've underlined from, from Walden. We are in great haste to construct a magnetic telegraph from Maine to Texas, but Maine and Texas, it may be, have nothing important to communicate. Either is in such a predicament as the man who was earnest to be introduced to a distinguished deaf woman, but when he was presented and one end of her ear trumpet was put into his hand, had nothing to say, as if the main object were to talk fast and not to talk sensibly. We are eager to tunnel under the Atlantic and bring the old world some weeks nearer to the new, but perchance the first news that will leak through into the broad, flapping American ear will be that Princess Adelaide has the whooping cough. <laughs> After all, the man whose horse trots a mile in a minute does not carry the most important messages. He is not an evangelist, nor does he come round eating locusts and wild honey. I doubt if flying childers ever carried a peck of corn to mill. Yeah. You know, Thoreau was, of course, a lunatic, but he was also a brilliant lunatic with a with a fine prose style. When I when I was young, I read uh, I read Walden several times in my teens, and later I read most most of him, and I finally quit reading him. But you know, the passage on the ant wars in Walden is still uh, worth hmm. reading for those who don't Quite. think that it's glorious uh, always to go out and slaughter innocent people for the glory of your your country. So, uh, yeah, the, so getting rid of the news to begin with, and then one, step by step, do, why read the latest uh, uh, thriller novel? I was, I was in a store yesterday, and I looked, and they had like the top 50 bestsellers, according in fiction bestsellers from the New York Times, on, on the rack in, the, in the, the grocery store, and I recognized some names. There's some woman, something Ivanovich, with a with a misspelled with an e and Clive Cussler and people like that but I had not read a single line of any of the books <laughs> that were being uh, advertised or sold same thing when I get I get news from Amazon or for, or for Kindle uh, I've never heard of any of these people it'll say number 1 New York bestseller I don't I have no idea who they are and because why waste time on that when there are 2000 years of literature, more than 2,000, to, you know, to almost 3,000 years of stuff you could read, including fairly light-hearted uh, uh, th- thrillers or romance novels from 75, 80 years ago. It's much better to reread The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins than to read the latest, yeah, Janet Ivanovich. <laughs> or James Patterson. Or James Patterson. He was on. I have no idea who James Patterson is. And uh, I did once go through a period of reading a lot of Dean Koontz, but uh, let me confess that uh, I was trying to recruit him as a donor for an organization I used to work for. I even wrote a literary encyclopedia entry on Dean Koontz, and he didn't like it because I described him as former Catholic. And and he said, how can I? I'm not a former Catholic. I'm I'm a good Catholic. When's the last time you went to Mass? And he said, I don't see what that has to do with it. 
I said, 20 years? More. And I said, well, <laughs> I'm sorry, but, you know, it's not like, it's not like believing in global warming. You know, that is a religion, of course, but it's a religion that doesn't make many demands except on other people's pocketbooks. Whereas Christianity demands, you know, when, you know whatever you eat and drink, you know, do this for the remembrance of me. You've got, you're supposed to do this on a regular basis. And I'm not saying that the Catholic position is right or the Orthodox position or that the, 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 the more slipshod Anglicans who could forgive you a lot for not attending. But you've got to make some good faith effort to be in communion. That's what, that's what being a Christian means. So, uh, yeah, anyway, so uh, thank goodness I, I no longer have to raise money. <laughs> <laughs> well, those days are not entirely behind no. you, Dr. Fleming, but that's a subject of another episode, perhaps. Believe me, yes. So, okay, I, I think our listeners can buy into music and film and the news. That's not a hard sell. I think probably the harder sell is family, friends, colleagues, club, uh, church, what are your prescriptions along those lines? Yeah. Now, this is uh, each of these is a specific and particular case. It, I think the greatest mistake of modern ethics, which I trace, say, back to uh, Descartes and Spinoza and then Kant, the great mistake of all modern ethical systems is to treat different cases as according to the same general rule. In other words, if it's good to take care of your children, you should take care of other people's children. If you can't just respect your parents or your neighbor's parents or your friend's parents or fr parents in your society, you have to somehow uh, acknowledge the rights of the elderly and the rights of children and the rights of everybody. This leads, of course, to a, a, the, the terrible burden of global philanthropy. You have to, in other words, you have to have the mind of God who can, who can, uh, grasp the suffering or joy of everything in the universe. And of course, they, by playing God, we uh, teach ourselves to neglect our own people and ignore our own responsibilities. So, there's, you can't have a general rule to fit family, friends, colleagues, neighbors, different, uh, 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 you know, dist casual acquaintances. Your Aunt Maud, for example, I hope you don't have an Aunt Maud, but she may be a silly liberal Democrat, but she's your aunt. And so she must be treated with uh, the affection and respect that your mother or father's sister requires. And it's also a question of family unity. There are many, many, too many, uh, too many political ideologues in the modern world who break up families by because they're too far on the right or too far on the left. A lot of a lot of sort of racialist right wingers are constantly berating their relatives about getting getting their heads straight on the race issue or or vice versa. So uh, with Aunt Maud or your mother or your grandmother, you have to learn to avoid political topics that will exacerbate relations. If if Aunt Maud really thinks that uh, the the, the, those Confederate scoundrels should have their uh, statues t uh, torn down. Don't, don't bring up the subject. Don't bring up the subject of the South. If she brings them up, treat her opinions in a friendly way, but treat it as a joke and indicate that maybe there are better things you can talk about. This, this usually works. Close friends of long standing, that is childhood acquaintances, uh, it's a you have a slightly looser obligation, but you want to do your best to avoid breaking with them. But on the other hand, if you have friends or in America, anybody we had lunch with twice becomes my good friend so-and-so. You notice how Pat Buchanan on television would always refer to some leftist enemy as my friend. Listen, my friend. <laughs> And what this, I thought this was just some kind of rhetorical tick, but I realized after a while that people who act this way and talk this way probably don't have a friend. They probably don't even have a close acquaintance because you can't possibly run around use, it's, it's like, it's like in, the, in the pop music and in the ghetto, you see, man, that's really bad, meaning it's really good. <laughs> so there's this, this inversion of values where you call an enemy you detest you say you 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 misuse the word friend, 
in, in, in order to defuse hostility. This is a, this is a trivializing uh, habit. But, you know, if, imagine if you were a Jew and you were brought up with somebody and he's not just a crypto-Nazi but, but yeah, who, with whom you can get along with. But imagine he's constantly bringing it up. You know, you people deserved everything you got. It's too bad any of you are left. Well, how long would that person be your friend? Obviously, it can't be. So, <clears throat> casual friends in particular, people you, 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 you meet and go to parties with, you really can't tolerate them when they advocate, advocate persecution. Persecution of Christians, persecution of honorable Southerners, persecution of anybody who is proud of being uh, European or American. <clears throat> now, business, business is different. You see, uh, friendship... Friendship and family are uh, based on what the, the great so German sociologist uh, Tönnies called uh, Gemeinschaft, the principle of community. We're in this together whether I like you or not, whether you're smart or not, whether you're, you're good-looking or not. If you're a member of my family, you're a member of my family, and I, you know, I have to accept you. It's, home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in said uh, Robert Frost uh, famously. Business is different. Business is like a sports team. And I've, I've, I've written about this distinction uh, fairly often. Uh, it is what, uh, again, Turnies calls Gesellschaft, society. Here we have a, when you're in business or you're on a team or you're in Wall Street, the object is to make money or to win the game. And there you have to set aside certain feelings you might have. You've got to, you've got to get along with this person, but you, you need not have a drop of warmth. Business, business colleagues are for success. Now, of course, and if they start, if they start riding you, if they say, start calling you insulting names, it makes it increasingly difficult. On the other hand, churches... Churches combine the two, but churches are basically communal organizations. They're, they're like an extended family. And a show that we could, we could certainly do is uh, that uh, our Lord and the apostles constantly use two words to refer to fellow Christians. The word Christian doesn't exist yet. That apparently comes into uh, existence only among Gentile Christians at Antioch who didn't know what to call themselves. But the two words used are brother and friend. So the whole model for Christian association, especially within a specific communion, within a specific congregation or diocese, the, the, the whole notion is family. Now, so in other words, you have to accept a certain degree of idiocy among, in, in the priest or minister or your co-religionists, and uh, increasingly, as the, as the American clergy in particular becomes less and less Christian, more and more ignorant, and more and more hostile to civilization, this begins to be a bit of a, <clears throat> a strain on the nerves. But uh, eventually, of course, if you belong to a Christian body like United Church of Christ, which is opposed to everything that any normal person holds dear, well, it's hardly a church any longer, is it? I mean, what do you have to believe if you're in the United Church of Christ? I think I figured it out once. You have to believe that homosexuals can get married, that people can change their sex because they feel like it, and that mothers have the obligation to kill their children. I think that, 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 that's about it. Oh, and we should, we should have 90% taxation on the rich, which includes me, uh, who is a poor man. So, uh, so what I'm saying is that instead of having a one-size-fits-all rule for all our human associations, we need what in the medieval church uh, was, was called casuistry, and of course the principle of casuistry, that is, you have general principles, but, they had to, but different cases require different application. This starts with Aristotle, is continued beautifully in Cicero, we find it throughout any of St. Thomas's moral writings, and, it's, and of course, the, perhaps the greatest work of, works of casuistry are the ethical writings of St. Alphonsus de Liguori, who is, I think, a, a very much neglected 
uh, uh, theologian, a moral, especially in moral theology, where he, he, he is as important in moral theology, perhaps, as Thomas is in, uh, in other areas. So one of the things to reject about the modern world is this generic ethics uh, that, uh, that it tries to impose on us. I'm thinking of a particular situation, Dr. Fleming, with someone who was integral to getting one of my businesses up and running in Paris. He was uh, an American who's on, he has a board seat on the American Chamber of Commerce here, and he got me some pretty significant gigs. We were networking together, but I think as we got to know each other socially, we found out that we weren't just miles apart, we were continents apart mm -hmm. on a number of issues. And he got quite politically involved in the 2016 election. And one of the things that he did the day after, or not even the day after, maybe the night of the election, he is he posted a meme that had a picture of three of the previous first ladies and then a naked picture of Melania Trump. And I remember at that moment unfollowing him on Facebook, but I the calculus in my mind was, however repugnant this man might be socially, he's done a lot for me in business and I should be grateful. But as the as the new year wore on, I didn't e I ha and to the, I haven't emailed him since last October, maybe, even though there are possibilities for us to do business together. And interestingly, he hasn't emailed me either. He may just simply be busy. But I find more and more as uh, I get older that I am unwilling to do business or reluctant to do business with people who I know are more are morally opposed to 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 me and to what I stand for. And uh, whereas maybe in my 20s, I was quote unquote more practical and I would just look beyond these things. I don't want to become normalized to deviancy, yeah. whether this person is living in sin with someone else or is in a homosexual relationship. I, I am consciously trying to exclude those people, not just for my, not just for my social life, but for my business life. Am I, am I following your advice or am I taking this too far? Um, it, it all this depends on on uh, on uh, you and you. You're an independent contractor in a way. You have your own businesses. Suppose that you were uh, you were a a young executive at a high tech firm, and this guy was in a position where he could harm you. And you're working for until you leave the company. You are you're forced, in other words, to go through certain jump through certain hoops of good manners and association and and to try to always change the subject. However, when you own your own business, as you do, then, uh, then you are much freer to indulge your uh, principles or, or even in, in a whim. This used to be one of the because in the old good old days, if you didn't want to rent your house to somebody because he had pink hair, you, you uh, were free to do that. And increasingly, you know, they're closing in on us. You know, I, I was just at the checkout counter yesterday and a flagrantly make a couple of, of uh, male homosexuals and the, one of them was fat, but he had like a, a girlish hairdo on the top of his head. He had virtually almost shaved the sides, but then he had this, you know, it reminded me of, you know, the, the old phrase, you can't put lipstick on a pig. Well, and, um, but you know, we're, we're, we're not, we're not allowed even to uh, to go our own way uh, much and ignore it. The big thing is that uh, to understand that 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 we have we have general principles, and one of those principles should be not to have not to associate with. And this is this is this is in very this is in catechisms. It's in the most basic form instructions. Say in a in a in a mass book, it'll say you, you're not supposed to have c communication with immoral people because by not saying that you disapprove of their immoral behavior, that you're give, your, your silence is giving assent to it. And you have to be always aware of this. On the other hand, you don't have a license to be a jerk either. That is to walk around tapping people on the shoulder. I hope you know you're disgusting me. So, you know, it, it, it is, and, and you notice that um, I think one of the assumptions in some of the older Christian and Catholic writings in particular is that you, if you live in a Catholic world, there's a lot that you can do by not only setting an example, but by admonishing sin and vice. 
But we are now living in the age of persecution. Uh, Constantine hasn't come yet, you know, to set Christians free. We're living in one of those periods where uh, merely the, the fact of being a, trying to lead a Christian life and keep a low profile, but not wanting to do business with people who are degraded and vicious, uh, you, you, you can end up in jail. You can certainly end up paying huge fines. So uh, some, so personal prudence now, I think, really, really comes uh, very much, <clears throat> very much into the equation, because we're not, we shouldn't be courting martyrdom, even even the low-level mar- martyrdom of social shunning and uh, being sent to Coventry, as they used to say, and of uh, and of having our businesses boycotted. So it's a again, this is where. In every case, we have to be asking ourselves, are we, are we applying our general principles, and, but are we applying them in a correct and appropriate manner that, so that we are not doing harm either, either to a, a worthwhile enterprise we're engaged in or are doing harm to our friends and family? You know, when we, I used to know, uh, I had a friend, he was a, a loony Calvinist named John Lofton, who was a prominent Republican writer, and he worked for the Washington Times, and John would. Uh, John was a Rushdooniite, and he would go to the uh, uh, food giant stores in the Washington D.C. area and hand out pamphlets to the people who said no, thank you. They, they, he would start screaming, "What's wrong? Are you committed to the devil?" And you know, he got he got thrown out of the parking lots of the food giants so so often that they banned him from entering their property. And uh, he thought that he was being martyred for his religion. I just explained to him, you're, uh, you're an obnoxious jerk. And uh, being a Christian doesn't give you a license to misbehave. And, the, and it's very interesting, this, this argument breaks out in the early church between, for example, the Montanists on the one hand who are severely moralistic and say, no, you can't celebrate the emperor's birthday, that's paganism, you can't read pagan books, you can't do this, you can't do that, basically making themselves so obnoxious that they were inviting persecution. And the mainstream of the church always opposed it, but they came roaring back when when, uh, John Calvin and John Knox were in the pulpit. And this is a problem we have to learn to deal with. Have you found that yourself, Dr. Fleming, with with friends over the years, that people who you were able to be friends with, you at some point had to take a stand and it was related to one of these moral issues? Often. And um, one of the things that happens with me is I don't want to get into a fight with them. I don't want to get into an argument with them uh, because you realize uh, that they're... They, 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 they start with such preposterous basic notions, notions that they, that they have to contradict themselves, require them to contradict themselves in, in, in any uh, three sentences. You know, on the one hand, they believe in ultimate moral values. On the other hand, they're complete materialists. And I'll say, huh? I mean, how can you believe? How can you be a materialist and say that there's no right and wrong, but you, but you, are, but you are fervently committed to this position? Shouldn't you just ignore it? But I had one friend in particular, it just got boring. It just gets very, very boring. On the other hand, uh, I try, I do have a rule, which is I try not to hold people accountable for being stupid. In other words, I don't believe in sending people to hell because they can't understand the nature of the Trinity or transubstantiation. Um, they're, they're, uh, they've been trained badly. Uh, they, they, they may have too low an IQ. What do you say to a, a, a person who leads a good Christian life but has, a, has an IQ around 70 and he can't understand any theology? He just, he's, an, he's, he's an Aryan or he, he doesn't even know what he thinks. I mean, clearly, if they act according to the scriptures and they, they act with Christian love, you have, to, you have to really cut them a lot of slack. But on the other hand, people, let, let's, it's, not, it's not always just a mistake in the mind. What you're often dealing with is a bad character. That is, they, they embrace bad ideas because those bad ideas allow them to, to do bad things. I was once uh, told a, uh, a leading libertarian I knew that uh, somebody who was a well-known Catholic journalist was now calling himself a libertarian. 
And uh, this libertarian said, well, what is he, a tax cheat or a child molester? Because the only reason you become a libertarian is because you have some, some vice that you want to protect. Now, interestingly, I mean, this, this guy is called, told, said, claims I invented the story. No, 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 no. This, this, came, this came from a very prominent libertarian, and it's, it's not like most, like most true generalizations. It's only 90% true. Well, I, I would say maybe I agree with 90% of Fulton Sheen. Uh, I remember that he had told a story about a woman he'd met and on a train or, or somewhere, and she said, well, you know, I used to be Catholic, but I don't really believe in confessing your sins to a man. And he turned to her and he says, how long have you been divorced? <laughs> And, and she was she was just shocked. And the, obviously the idea is that people will find something else, uh, some intellectual reason to cover up a moral failing. Yeah. Uh, and, and this was uh, along the lines of what you're discussing. Interestingly, when I was a child, my atheist ex-Catholic father often watched Fulton Sheen complaining the whole time. But you know he had had an, he had a completely Catholic upbringing and education, and uh, and it was interesting. It was clear to me that he respected and admired Fulton Sheen, but it ha had a hypnotic influence on uh, on my on my on my father. Who he would make sarcastic comments, but then he would watch the show. <laughs> yeah, so we call this hate watching. <laughs> Uh, the millennials yeah. call this. The truth is, though, that Fulton Sheen was, although a very suave, urbane, superficial manner, uh, it, it, there there was steel underneath, and a lot, and, and a depth of understanding I didn't credit until only recently. I, I was reading a few little things of his. There's a remark un, underneath the surface. There's a remarkable uh, depth of uh, of wisdom. Yes, that might that might be a topic for another episode. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about that. It's, uh, it would it would go along with the uh, appraisal of Bill Buckley episode. Yes. Uh, so obviously, we're talking about specific cases here, Dr. Fleming. Can you what is what's the principle underlying what you're talking about? This casuistry, this relationship to Aunt Maud or Aunt Helen, however it may be. Um, what's what's the the basic principle you're advocating for? I think what I'm talking about, we would say in ordinary language, is a principle of loyalty. Loyalty to our ancestors, loyalty to the cultural traditions and religious traditions that have uh, formed us, loyalty to our faith. Uh, by the way, I hate, I hate the use of the word, the generic use of the word religion, but sometime we should talk about I, I'm, I'm very fond of religion, and I respect religion as a principle independent of the way, the truth, and the life that, uh, that, that, that Christ has, represents to us. But we shouldn't speak too lightly of, our, of uh, Christian faith as religion. But anyway, so loyalty to our religion, loyalty to all, everything, every good thing that we have learned to love. Uh, we wouldn't be friends with someone who slandered our mother, would we? We wouldn't, if somebody wrote a book slandering our parents, we wouldn't read the book, we wouldn't buy the book, we wouldn't see the movie. And to understand that that is our relationship to these great ancestors, whether they are, whether they are uh, generals or frontiersmen or philosophers uh, or playwrights, the, the, these people, to some extent, are, are, we are what they are. We're, we're a gift. Our, our mind, our, our feelings, our character, our sense of virtue. I remember uh, you, you mentioned Bill Buckley a few seconds ago. Uh, Christopher Buckley, who is a, a fairly popular novelist, uh, much more uh, liberal than uh, politically than his father, a moderate conservative. I, 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 I don't know him. We're, 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 of course, we're virtual friends on Facebook. But he seems to be a fairly sensible person. I didn't used to uh, have much uh, respect for him. But when National Review came out with uh, sort of a repudiation of Bill Buckley, a real, a real nasty critique, a, a magazine which, after all, he founded and ran for decades. I, I don't understand, by the way, this need to, to repudiate founders and, and father figures. Uh, I'm sure Dr. Freud has something to say about people who do this. 
But Christopher Buckley took his name off their editorial board and just repudiated it. I'm sorry. My father had his failings, but it's not up to na- the people at National Review to point them out. Now, I think that is exactly right. That's exactly right. If your father's Adolf Hitler, for goodness sake, you should at least say, well, you know, he liked children and he did his best. I know he did some bad things, but I'm the son. It's not up to me. That's why when David Horowitz, for example, uh, was a red diaper baby, had written a book denouncing his father and all the people he grew up with. No, leave that to other people. Leave that to the Goldwaterites. You know, uh, you know your, your father's sins... Uh, especially when they're just being stupid politically, are, are just, it, it's not your job in life to revile your father. Loyalty entails uh, a respect for your for ancestors and for your friends, but also respect for other people and their traditions. Josiah Royce, one of the better philosophers America produced, even though he did have the misfortune to teach at Harvard, Royce's highest principle was loyalty, but he said the ultimate loyalty principle was loyalty to the principle of loyalty, which comes close to being the Christian golden rule. In other words, if I as a Christian or Anglo-Christian or European, if I want to preserve my traditions and and, and, uh, be free to do it, that means I can't run around calling for the massacre of Jews or Confucianists or Buddhists. It, and uh, uh, that, that every worthy tradition, every, every tradition, religious, philosophical, cultural, that is worthy of, of any respect is worthy of loyalty and worthy of, therefore, our respect. There is an exception, and that is there are traditions that exist to hate us and our traditions. One of them, of course, is Islam. I'm not saying all Muslims are like this. I'm not saying there aren't some many good things within Islamic culture, like Persian poetry, you know, uh, uh, Arabic mathematics. There are lots of things that are worthy of respect. But when we get to seriously carrying out jihad against the Christian world, I think we don't owe them uh, loyalty or, or respect. And I would say that along with Islam, the other great enemy, of course, is leftism, the most virulent forms being Marxist, feminism, etc. But the leftist tradition in general, going back several hundred years, their, their raison d'etre has always been the destruction of Christendom, and they must be resisted, and therefore they must be shunned. Well, I think that's a good place for us to end. Me too. Uh, shunning, Dr. Yeah. Fleming. <laughs> yep. And thanks so much for your time, and we look forward to having you on another episode of Surely You Must Be Joking, Dr. Fleming, in which case, if the audience hasn't figured out, he's not really joking. (laughs) Goodbye, Stephen. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.